So habit-based approach, as the title implies. Um, what we'll open up first with is just sort of slicing and dicing exactly what is a diet. Now, many of you may try a diet for lots of different goals. We can run through some of those possible goals. You might want to lose weight, maybe tone up your muscles, get more energy or feel more energized, lower your blood pressure if you have issues with that. Maybe you have diabetes and so you want to adopt a, a diet that helps you regulate your blood glucose. Um, maybe you have a specific disease that can be mediated by dietary changes, um, or maybe you have something like longevity in mind. All sorts of diets that you could possibly do to address these things. And sure enough, many people have achieved, have achieved these goals with any number one of these diets. And I think, simply put, what that tends to show us is that the magic in how these diets work is not defined by what differentiates them from each other, but how they're similar to one another. And the way that they're similar to one another is that they help you create a calorie deficit and you lose weight because you're not eating as much food. How exactly does a diet help you do that? Well, diets give you structure. Apologies for the spelling mistake. Um, structure, basically, a diet will establish some rules that control your eating behavior. Those rules reduce your food choices, which leads to you eating less food and ultimately you lose weight because you're eating less food. Now there's an asterisk there, of course, losing weight doesn't necessarily mean losing fat, so just bear that in mind. We won't go too deep into the nitty gritty of um, the nutrition of the physiology and, uh, and that sort of thing, but we'll just sort of focus on these basics. Um, how many of you have tried a diet and achieved some form of result from your diet, whatever that may be? Okay, a few people, yeah, have you guys, how many of you have maintained 100% of those results? How many of you have maintained 50% of those results? We've established that many of you have had trouble maintaining that weight loss. Well, why did you have trouble maintaining that weight loss? There is a myriad of reasons why you might have had trouble uh, maintaining that weight loss over the long term. Perhaps your diet was too extreme, and that's a relative term. Maybe it's just might not be absolutely too extreme, but maybe you just felt it was too extreme for you based on your lifestyle preferences. Um, maybe it didn't educate you as to how to make adjustments once progress stalled. Maybe you had uncontrollable cravings. Maybe you just got bored of the diet and, uh, and you didn't know what to do next. And perhaps you didn't have an environment suited to supporting uh, that dietary change. Which diet is best for everyone? So coming back around to all these goals and coming back around to the fact that there are all sorts of diets that can help you achieve these goals, but a lot of these diets also tend to, at least when they're marketed, tend to claim sort of diet supremacy, like they're the, the one single best diet and it's the best diet for everyone and you should avoid all the other diets. Now, what does the, the science say about that? Well, diet studies have demonstrated that no matter what diet you're on, across the board, humans just have a natural tendency for low adherence rates, with underreporting ranging anywhere from 10 to 50%, and some studies suggesting as high as 70%. So what does that mean? That means when we put people in control, controlled situations where, they're tra where we're tracking their food, they tend to underreport their food intake by 50%. So if they're eating something like, if they say they're eating 2,000 calories, they're actually eating 3,000 calories. And that's, uh, that could, that's basically the equivalent of two pounds a week that could, they could potentially be depositing. 
So just keep that in mind. Um, even things like known autoimmune diseases aren't enough for 100% adherence. There are some studies in celiacs, people who have a, a very serious autoimmune response when, with the presence of gluten in their intestinal lumen, they get this inflammatory response, and it can be quite serious, potentially fatal. But when we put celiacs on uh, gluten-free diets, even, even though they know that it's potentially fatal, even though they, they don't feel great when they sort of eat off track, adherence rates on gluten-free diets are still only between 45 to 90%, not even 100%. So health is not even enough to convince people to stay on a diet that's maybe not, doesn't fall within their preferences. Dietary adherence predicts weight regain. In high adherers, weight regain at the two-year mark, people put on 50% back on what they lost. And for people who have low adherence rates at the two-year follow-up, they put on an average of 99% of what they lost initially. Dietary adherence explains the weight loss plateau even, even after adaptive thermogenesis is accounted for. Adaptive thermogenesis just basically means that when you lose weight and you drop down to a lower weight, so let's say you're 130 pounds and you drop down to 120 pounds, the amount of energy that your body tissue needs to support that body weight um, ultimately has to be less than what you were eating before. So if you cut your calories back 500 calories and you got to a new weight and you started to settle there, well, that's no longer a calorie deficit. That's your new normal. And that's where you have to eat to maintain that new weight. And so when we control for that for mathematic, with mathematical calculations, um, when we have people in controlled feeding studies and they hit this weight loss plateau, after we've calculated out for the presumed adaptive thermogenesis, it still doesn't explain why they're having that weight loss plateau, and it sort of all comes back to um, their adherence rates. Is everyone following along OK? okay. Um, most weight is gained over the holiday season, which we're in the midst of. And this is actually a worldwide phenomenon. Um, even in, uh, I think it's China, during their New Year, same thing. Um, the average weight gain is around five pounds, but the significance of it is that um, when we reweigh people the following spring and then the following fall, we see that they maintain that weight in the spring and then they still add a little bit more by the fall and the total weight gained is about five pounds each year for those people who have this sort of issue putting on that, that holiday weight. Self-monitoring of diet, so basically using a food diary or maybe some of you might use MyFitnessPal. I'm a big proponent of MyFitnessPal. I have basically all my clients use that. It just makes it easier for me to track with them. Um, is tightly correlated with weight loss. So basically, the better you are at tracking your food, the more weight you tend to lose, and the more successful you tend to be at maintaining that weight loss. Any diet that causes weight loss improves health markers. As was said earlier, even a 10% uh, loss of body weight. Is that right? Sorry, I didn't catch your name. Ten, yeah, 10% loss of body weight was enough to improve all health biomarkers. And that's something that's preeminent in the research as well. 10% body weight loss can improve, especially health markers in diabetics. Um, again, it doesn't matter what diet it is. Even in high sugar diets, as high as 150 grams of sugar a day, as long as you're in a hypocaloric state, that is you're eating an, a calorie amount that doesn't cause you to gain weight, you will see improvements in blood markers across the board. Um, and another point here from Precision Nutrition, of all of their clients who have 
a BMI index over 40. So um, just coming back around earlier to when I said that uh, myself, in, when I was in high school at, a, at an obese level two, uh, my BMI index was 35. So 40 is even beyond that. All of their clients who have a BMI index of over 40, out of, out of those people, two thirds of those clients say they have above average nutrition knowledge. So that means one of two things. Either they don't know what they don't know, or the knowledge that they have isn't enough to get the job done. They are having trouble applying that knowledge. Okay, so coming back around full circle. All sorts of different goals, all sorts of different diets. What does the research say? No matter what diet you do, they're all capable of giving you similar results. Doesn't matter which one you do. And for that reason, no one diet stands out. Results tend to fall on what we call a bell curve. So when we plot out results, in this case, weight loss results, um, in the context of putting people on a diet, there are going to be a small group of people who get modest or like not great results, and then the bulk of people who get pretty average, pretty decent results, and then also another small group of people who see amazing results. So the important thing to remember there is that there's going to be a lot of people who are just preaching the gospel on a certain diet and say it's amazing, it's going to, it's going to do all these amazing things for you. That may be true for them, doesn't mean it's going to be true for the next person. All diets are subject to poor adherence. For that reason, all diets are ultimately short-term. And let me just sort of recontextualize this. If it's a diet that doesn't really match your lifestyle, okay? If it's a diet that you're sort of forcing yourself to do, because maybe you, you heard someone else, someone else recommended it to you, or, or it's, it's the thing to do right now, it's hot and trendy, um, chances are you're not going to have great adherence on it if you have to make a big lifestyle change. And ultimately, that's what's going to make it short term. And I think most importantly, at least from my point of view, diet, as important as it is, is one link in the lifestyle change. Uh, there's a myriad of other cofactors that um, influence how your body weight fluxes um, over the course of a year. The activity that you're doing, and also all the psychological and mental factors as well, obviously. So the consensus is that Adherence, ultimately, is more important than the type of diet that you do if you're going to see maintained results. Long-term results require sustainability. And so you need to ask yourself the question, whenever you hop on a diet, can you see yourself living with this lifestyle long-term? And by long-term, if I could throw a timeline out there, two months, if you can't really see yourself staying on this thing for like two months, then it's probably not going to be the solution for you. So with all diets tending to claim sort of diet supremacy, they ultimately sort of take this one-size-fits-all one approach. But the one-size-fits-all approach ultimately ignores how big or small you are, because obviously the bigger you are, the more calories you need. The smaller you are, the less calories you need. When we're talking about sort of the magic of diets and how they work, low carb, low sugar, low fat, whatever, ketogenic, they don't talk too much about the calories and the energy balance, but it's a real thing. And calories matter whether you count them or not. Not that I'm telling you guys that you need to count calories, but. Uh, it doesn't account for how much lean mass or body fat you have or want to have how active you are, how intense, long-lasting, and frequent that activity is, how old you are, what stage of life you're at. A lot of these are lifestyle factors too, right? 
especially when it comes to extreme things. If you're, if, if you're the kind of person who isn't into extreme lifestyle, then that's not, obviously not going to be something that's going to jive with you. Uh, your, in, your specific macronutrient distribution profile. Um, the reason I bring that up is that there are going to be some diets that um, may limit you from getting the benefits of things like, we know, for example, that when we take subjects from a, a um, energy intake where 15% of their energy uh, is coming from protein and we put them on a diet where 30% of their uh, energy is coming from protein, we see uh, very predictable weight loss from that. And the reason that is is because protein versus carbs or fat has a much higher, higher thermogenic effect of food. And that just means that the process of digesting it is very energy intensive. It actually takes more calories to process, sorry, to digest protein than it does carbs or fat. Carbs is about double the energy requirements of fats, and protein is about double the requirements of carbs. Protein is about 15 to 30% of your calorie load. So theoretically, if you were to eat 100 calories of protein, um, with minimal fat residue, carb residue, uh, you could potentially burn up to 30 calories of that just through the digestive process. And really in the last eight to 10 years, we've only started to control studies for those things that we know about protein right now. So it's high thermogenic effect of food. Way back in the day, 10 years ago, we were doing studies on ketogenic. We were doing studies on intermittent fasting. We were doing studies on low fat, low sugar but we hadn't really gotten around to controlling for how much are we equating protein across the board across all these groups? Are we equating calories across the board for all these groups? And are we equating protein and calories across the board for all these groups when we compare low fat to low carb to yada, yada, yada? Uh, doesn't account for your genetics. That's, a, that's actually a, a big one. They've done numerous studies in twins looking at feeding multiple groups including identical twins, fraternal twins, and controls, so identical being 100% identical genetically, fraternal twins being 50% identical genetically, and then controls, which are just not unrelated people. Um, and basically feeding them the same amount of calories over their maintenance level. So let's say we have them all eating at a maintenance level where basically they're eating an amount of energy where they're maintaining their weight. That's what we mean by maintenance level and we're feeding them all 1,000 calories over that number, whatever that number is. And we see vastly different um, uh, degrees of fat deposition or weight deposition on those people from group to group. We tend to notice that the individuals who are 100% genetically identical, there's very small divergence in, those, in those, uh, those weight changes, so they tend to be closer in weight when they put on weight. Fraternal twins, tend to be more divergent. We see a greater divergence in how much weight they put on between each other. And that, of course, controls the same thing. The unrelated subjects are obviously uh, gaining or, uh, a much more or much less weight than the identical twins. So there's a big genetic factor that falls into exactly how you deposit the calories that you're eating or taking in. Uh, one size fits all approach doesn't account for what foods you like, tolerate, and prefer to eat. That's a really important one. If you're doing a diet that ultimately goes against what you like to do, chances are you're not going to be able to do that long term. Doesn't account for your food culture and traditions. These are also deeply rooted, often sort of subconscious or unconscious 
um, drivers of your food behaviors, right? There are things that you did in your childhood or foods that you ate or that were prepared for you in your childhood that you sort of have like a subconscious longing for and it's hard for you to stay away from those foods, right? But if you're on a diet that says, no, you can't have that, then that might create a conflict. Um, most people like to eat with each other, social engagement. There's all sorts of different environmental and stress factors. Um, stress is going to be a big one, and we'll talk a little bit more about that. Uh, support systems. Some people have really good support systems, really good supportive partners. Other people, not so much. And um, in order for us as coaches to help you along in your weight loss journey, we need to try to identify what exactly your support system is to help you along and ferry you through this weight loss journey or whatever journey that you're on. And of course, it doesn't account for what your actual goal is. Why couldn't you maintain your diet? A few points that we'll run through here. Diets largely depend on willpower, um, which is also something that has a lot of research behind it, and some of which indicates that it might even be genetically influenced. So in that sense, either you have it or you don't. So if the diet that you're on is vastly different from the way that you naturally like to eat, it's relying largely on willpower to get you through, which is not good if you don't have it. Um, willpower is kind of funny. It's sort of like a muscle. It gets tired, or it's, it's like, uh, uh, it's not a fine, or it is a finite resource. You kind of run out of it through the course of the day. Um, there's some interesting studies done on that, one of which is one that they've done on parole board judges, where they look at the verdicts that the judges hand out across the course of a day, and the, and the verdicts got harsher and harsher and harsher, and then the judges would break for lunch, they'd come back, and then their uh, verdicts would be less harsh, and that sort of cycle would repeat. So it's almost like they recharged after that break. And that's something that they refer to as decision fatigue. Another point on when this thing called decision fatigue happens is you are more prone to risk-taking and your sort of logical faculties don't tend to work as well. And so you tend to do things like um, partake in activities or food behaviors where you're just thinking about short-term gratification and you're sacrificing long-term gain, such as, ooh, I see that donut over there. Um, I'm going to have that donut because I know it's going to taste good to me right now, and I'm not too worried about the inches it puts around my waist you know, later on down the road. And I'm not too worried about the implications of putting on weight and the, and the health implications that that has. How do we make that easier? Well, there are things that you can do, like you can bank or budget your willpower. Um, Obama, the former president of the United States, had a... Um, uh, did this thing where he had only two suits, uh, so he didn't have the challenge of trying to have too hard of his decision on what he was going to wear that day since he only had two suits. And so he had more energy to divert his willpower elsewhere. Um, you could do things like recharging or resetting or meditating or just taking breaks throughout the day so that you can recharge that willpower a little bit, like we talked about the parole board judges who would break for lunch and then they sort of, they were refreshed after that. You can control your environment. This, I think, is an obvious one, but, you know, if you're in an environment where you're surrounded by, you know, there's a reason why they put candy bars and, and that sort of thing in the checkout aisle, right? You guys know that, right? Yeah, that impulse buy sort of effect, yeah. It's, it's hard when you're standing there, especially for like 
five, 10, 15 minutes and you're staring at those candy bars and you're like, I'm guilty of that too. I usually get the Lindors, but that's just my thing. Because they're sort of pre-portioned, right? That's the secret. Okay. Diets also eliminate choice. Choice affords you two values. One of those is freedom, so basically a feeling of being unrestrained or unrestricted, and the other one is autonomy, a feeling of independence, like you, you have the ability to make your own decisions. So in essence, choice gives you what you want and allows you to express who you are, which ultimately is what makes you feel engaged with the world around you and adds to your feeling of existentialism. You, you, you have a better sense of purpose, a sense of purpose in the world. And that's an important concept that is really important in um, training in sports as well. So you need to ask yourself, what did you have to give up when you went on your diet? What convinced you to do it, or what convinced you to give up those things? How did making those changes affect your lifestyle? What were the possible consequences of breaking this diet or falling off this diet? Because a lot of those consequences can be things that are mental or psychological, like feelings of shame or guilt. Um, so you know, how did it make you feel? These are all important questions. Diets make a lot of bold claims. And they use a lot of negative language. And they like to tell you things like, you know, everything that you've done up to this point, you've been doing wrong. But we have the secret. And if you just do what we tell you to do, you're going to achieve everything you ever wanted. But you also need to make sure that you don't do any of these other diets, because they also may possibly kill you. Right? There's a lot of that sort of talk as well. So again, coming back around to that one size fits all. They make bold claims like they promise amazing results, but they also do that by enforcing strict rules. And we talked about how that eliminates your choice, and eliminating choice affects your uh, sense of existentialism and your sense of autonomy. The bold claims they make also tend to medicalize food. They say, if you eat this way, you're going to cure all your ailments. But if you do that diet, it's going to give you cancer or, or, or something of the sort. And that is something that we call sort of fear-based decision-making, where something convinces you to make decisions based off of fear instead of based off of the other thing that we would rather you focus on, which can anyone guess what the opposite of fear-based decision-making would be? Logic-based decision? No, we're on the right track. I'm, I'm, I'm an optimist. Goal-based decision-making, goal-based decision-making. So the difference being avoid or achieve. Fear-based decision-making is trying to convince you to do things to try to avoid something else. Whereas goal-based decision-making, we want you to think about what you want to achieve. And what happens with these diets that focus on this fear-based decision-making is you get this sort of smoke and mirrors effect, whereas I explained before that Diets don't work because of all the ways that diets are different from each other. They don't work in the way of how this diet is different from that one. They work in how they are all similar to each other. And again, coming back around to um, them all creating a calorie deficit, and that's how they help you lose weight. And they create a calorie deficit because they eliminate food choices, and so you basically eat less food, right? So the magic is not in what you're doing, but in all the things that you're not doing. Does that make sense? Okay. So that's how that smoke and mirror effect comes around. Um, 
when you focus on goal-based decision making and you have this goal in mind and you can visualize this goal like I'm going to do this thing, you go through a completely different emotional experience when you undertake that, that journey to achieve that goal as opposed to doing something because you're afraid of this other thing happening. And that's really significant and really important and really key to your um, sustainability of of that diet and that journey. So reality check. Any diet that claims things that sound too good to be true probably is. Again, results occur across a spectrum. So it may claim amazing results, but in reality, you're going to have people who get diddly on that, on that plan or program. Okay, so we just got to keep that in mind. Diets tend not to explain the nuts and bolts of exactly how they work. They would rather just give you lots of anecdotes and tell you how amazing they are. And unfortunately, when you don't have more uh, of the nuts and bolts and the mechanisms behind how they work, you start to lack an understanding of exactly what's going on. And when you don't understand what's going on, you feel like you're not in control. And when you feel like you're not in control, you feel like nothing that you do matters which ultimately leads to this thing that we call learned helplessness, which will, which there are three things that I want you to remember about learned helplessness or that are correlated with learn, learned helplessness, and that's that learned helplessness affects future motivation. It's largely correlated with suppressed immunity because stress is stress. Learn, learned helplessness is stress. You're in a stressful situation. And suppressed immunity uh, is also associated with clinical depression or rather learned helplessness is associated with clinical depression. Which can ultimately make you not want to do anything, which is the opposite of what we're trying to accomplish, right? So, you must be wondering by now, what can we do about it? Um, got a quote here, not only do you not need to be perfect to get results, you don't even need to be pretty good. And this is based off over a million different data points that Precision Nutrition, precision, sorry, Precision Nutrition, for those of you who don't know, is just, it's a well-respected, evidence-based nutrition company that does a lot of certifications, programs, courses uh, that anyone can do if you want to learn more about nutrition. And they have, using over a million data points, over a thousand of their clients who have undertaken their year program, what they've discovered is that of those people who take their year program, even if you're only 10 to 49% consistent with the daily actions that you set out to do to help you achieve your goal, even that is enough to help you lose 5 to 6% of your body weight, which equated to 11 pounds between men and women, lose 8 to 11 inches off your body, including 3 from the waist. And for those people, they also got healthier because that's because research suggests that a 5 to 6% decrease in body weight can lead to better cardiovascular health, decreased cancer and diabetes risk, better sleep, better mood, less inflammation, better immunity, and last but not least, zestier sex drive, which I know you're all interested in. Guess how many Americans meet these four criteria? They don't smoke tobacco. They eat five servings of fruits and vegetables a day. They exercise five times per week for 30 minutes, and they maintain a healthy body weight. Any guesses? What percent of the population? 
Oh, you're good. 3%. Yeah, that's based on information from the uh, Behavioral Risk Factor Surveillance System. It was an accurate guess. I didn't know. I thought it would be 5%, but I said 3. <laughs> yeah, pretty low. Pretty low. How many of you think you can do this? You, see, I was, I was originally going to ask you guys, how many of you guys think you can do this before I put this number up here? And I was pretty sure that all of you guys were going to put your hand up. But, you know, in reality, it's, it's, you know, a lot of things are easier said than done, right? Um, now, before you undertake sort of any diet or any uh, nutritional program, it's good to know what your nutritional level is, or it's good to know what your, what your nutritional buy-in is, or your level of commitment is. And there are four questions that you can ask yourself to try to determine that, like, what do you need or want from nutrition coaching? It's really important when you're setting goals that you, be, that you have clarity as to what your goals are, okay? What do you know? So what do you know about nutrition? What do you know about yourself? What can you do right now? And what can you do consistently? That's probably the most important piece. What can you do consistently? Because I don't think too many people think that far ahead. Your nutritional level is influenced by your identity, so who you think you are, your values, what matters most, priorities, what you put first, goals, what you want. And if possible, we want to try to do this with a biopsychosocial perspective in mind. So whatever lifestyle that you intend to, um, whatever lifestyle that you choose or whatever lifestyle change that you, that you, that you choose, it should address all of these six cofactors. So obviously the physical, is it making you healthier? Hopefully there's an objective way that you can figure that out. Um, what is it doing to your emotional state? Environmental, right? Are you controlling for your environment? Do you have a healthy environment? Are you thinking about sustainability, like world sustainability, as part of your lifestyle? I think that's important. How's your mental state? Existential, we talked about autonomy. And of course, relational. Obviously, when we undergo stressful situations and a diet is, you know, it can be a stressful situation, that can, that can take its toll on relations, right? Six steps to outsmart your brain. We have a lot of research that indicates that weight flux or uh, weight storage, weight management has a lot to do with your brain, particularly the ventral medial hypothalamus. Um, and Stefan Guillenet, PhD, he's a very prolific obesity researcher um, and neuroscientist. He does a lot of work in this area has a great book called The Hungry Brain. And his six suggestions for outsmarting how your brain convinces you to overeat is fix your food environment, right? So if you're keeping all sorts of goodies in the pantry, maybe do something about that. Uh, manage your appetite. So there are things that you can do for managing your appetite, like um, smaller uh, dishes. That's actually one that I do at home, and I find it really works, works well. Um, beware of food reward. There is an effect that certain foods have, especially highly palatable foods, so foods high in sugar, high in fat, that have a dopaminergic response in the, um, in the ventral striatum of the brain where it reinforces the behavior that caused that dopamine secretion. 
and dopamine is basically a hormone that tends to fill you with really good feelings, right? And uh, addictions work a lot that way. Whenever you do something that causes that secretion of dopamine, uh, if it's done repeatedly and depending on the concentration of that dopamine response, it um, reinforces the action that led to it. Make sleep a priority. Uh, people who get as little as four to six hours of sleep chronically have impaired decision making. Impaired decision making can lead to things like obviously overeating, those impulse moments, right? Move your body, activity, that's an obvious one, right? Uh, and of course, manage stress. Identify your danger zones. Um, there's a book called Mindless Eating by Brian Wansink. He is uh, out of Cornell University, or was out of Cornell University. He does a lot of interesting food behavior type studies. Um, and he's, uh, he has categorized people in, into sort of like five different categories, one being the meal stuffer. This is the person who tends to clean their plate, and they say they have a healthy appetite. So if you find that you're the person who tends to eat a lot at the dinner table, maybe we can work on some ways to circumvent that, like, again, having smaller plates or only preparing enough food that, uh, that suits your calorie needs rather than making a whole bunch of food, that sort of thing. The snack grazer. Um, this is the person who doesn't really eat meals per se. They tend to snack a lot throughout the day. Um, and usually they do it more out of habit than over hunger, or they do it just so they can satisfy a, uh, in, a, a nervous impulse to want to wanna move around or put things in their mouth, that sort of thing. Uh, the party binger, the person who goes out to parties, receptions, or, 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 or other functions like that, uh, where food tends to be a backdrop for fun or business, uh, that's the kind of person who samples everything from the tables and just tends to lose track. Right? It's important, again, that you identify your danger zones. Are you that kind of person? What are you going to do when you know that you have a function coming up and you know that you might be prone to losing track of how much food you're taking in? The restaurant indulger. Um, this person is not unlike the party binger, but uh, they also tend to eat out very frequently. Uh, we may all, from time to time, go out for lunch on a regular basis, but these people tend to do that and go out for dinner like at least three times a week. Uh, when you go out to restaurants, they're, ser they're serving highly palatable food. There's a lot of hidden calories in there. Oftentimes, the portions are larger than you need. And the last one, the desktop or dashboard diner, which uh, is the one who kind of keeps food at their desk and just uh, sort of automatically sort of eats it. I see some people kind of like, oh, that might be me. Um, they tend to speed eat, and uh, they tend to be under-motivated in the sense that they don't want to really get up to make an actual meal. But if someone says, hey, you want to go for lunch, even though they've been snacking all day, they're like, yeah, sure, I'll go for lunch. You can see how prone you might be to overeating in that case. Um, neat little graphic that I found that I wanted to throw up here. Uh, you know, which plate contains the most food? This is something that really, really works. Um, smaller plates tend to make you feel like you have a portion on your plate that is going to fill you. And, and really the perception that the, the food is going to fill you is perhaps even just as important as whether or not it will actually fill you from a, from a physical standpoint, um, the anticipation of that food. 
So one thing to consider. Spot the difference. There's a you know, double calorie discrepancy here, but the plates don't look too dissimilar. There's obviously a difference, right? If, you know, there's a little bit more avocado, there's a little bit more of what looks like popcorn. I think there's about two more slices here. There's a big glob of peanut butter or almond butter, which looks to me like at least two to three tablespoons, which is 300 calories in and of itself. But, I mean, even just looking at the, the empty space on the plate, it doesn't really look like there's any less empty space on this plate, but it makes a big difference. It can make a really big difference, and you might not even know it. So those are some things to consider. All right, the thing you've all been waiting for, how to build a habit. Habits are unconscious actions versus a routine, which is something that you do repeatedly. But we want to try to make routines habits by programming the brain to do them automatically. Habits work in, in this sort of way. There's usually a reminder, and then you perform a routine, and then you get a reward. So a reminder like something like your clothes are starting to fit too tight. Well, what might be your routine for that? Oh, I screwed it up. Sorry. Oh. Okay, that's good. Uh, so you might uh, default to your comfort things, whether that's food, alcohol, inactivity, drugs perhaps. Maybe you like to spend money when you're sort of feeling stressed about your weight. Or maybe you just try out a new diet. Reminder, other reminders are things like maybe someone teases you, maybe you are in the checkout line and you see that excellent body on the magazine cover that you always wished you had, or maybe that joint that you've always had an issue with has been acting up and it's kind of getting you down and it's making you feel like you can't be as active as you want to be. And so then you resort to your usual routine and it satisfies, satisfies that dopamine effect in your brain and causes what we call dopamine-dependent associative learning. So the more times that you repeat these actions, the more you reinforce with dopamine, and the cycle just continues. Whereas what we might like to rather do is, maybe the reminder is you've set a schedule for yourself to go to Anytime Fitness, um, or you know, go and work out with a coach, or, or whatever that you have set up, and your routine is to do something active, and your reward is the benefit of seeing your friends, learning something new, setting a PR, and ultimately feeling great, getting buff. Those are important things. Uh, your reminder might be you're running low on healthy foods or prep meals that you have in the fridge. Right? You can see your, your, your Tupperware slo tower slowly declining in the fridge. Um, so your routine is you go to the store or you do the click and collect, which is like the online shopping thing, which I haven't done, but I've been really interested in trying. Have any of you guys done that? Click and collect, where you go online and shop and then you can either pick it up or maybe, I think they deliver it too. Yeah. I think Ceylon does that. Like sort of, yeah, same idea. And then there's other companies that obviously do that as well. Um, like local farms and stuff will, will do that sort of thing. And you know, coming back around to your danger zones, if you're the sort of person who's prone to impulse buying when you're in the grocery store, that might be a good option for you. Rewards for um, restocking on your healthy foods, helps you stay on track helps you see progress, and habits reinforce other habits, right? Uh, lifestyle changes tend to happen in clusters. 
You might hop on a diet, but then you start also working out and on and on and on. Uh, maybe you have an activity tracker that tells you whether or not you've hit, reached your steps for the day or, or that sort of thing. So if it tells you that you haven't done any activity, maybe you get up, go for a walk, do some chores. That helps you to improve your circulation and your cardiometabolic health. Of course, it helps you burn some calories. Adopting the habit. Ultimately, start with something so easy that you can't really say no. Honestly, that easy. And again, coming back around to the people who were only 10 to 49% consistent with their daily actions. Um, and we didn't talk about how grand or how small those actions might have been. But regardless of that, if they're only doing them half the time and even less than half the time, does it really matter? So again, start with something so easy you can't say no. It doesn't have to be big. It can be small. Make improvements over time. So if that thing that's so easy you can't say no to is maybe your goal is I want to do 60 push-ups or something like that, or I just want to get fit. And the, the daily action that you're doing is, OK, I'm going to do five push-ups a day. And to make improvements, every day I'm just going to add one push-up, something like that. Set a schedule for it. If you have to, reduce the scope, but stick to the schedule. So if you're getting to a point where you find that that daily action is maybe getting to a point where um, maybe recovery is becoming an issue, or uh, maybe you also took on a new job, and now your overall schedule is becoming an issue, there's some sort of obstacle. Stick to the schedule. Reduce the scope, but stick to the schedule. So if that means you have to drop from um, your five kilometer walk in the morning down to three kilometers, fine, so be it. Stick to the schedule. Doesn't matter how big or small it is. Focus on the process, not on the outcome. The outcome is largely arbitrary. Um, if you set a goal to lose 20 pounds and you only lose 12, does that mean you failed? No, you just set an arbitrary goal of 20 pounds. You're on the right path. Sometimes the path that you're on isn't as important as the direction you're going. And clearly, if you lose 12 pounds, you're moving in the right direction. There is a sheet in your handouts there called, I think it's called Goals to Actions, or Actions to Goals, or something along those lines. And what we want you to do is go through the diagram that has your goal at the top, or there might be two spots for goals. Um, and that breaks down into skills, and that breaks down into practices, and that breaks down into daily actions. And these daily actions are the things that should be so small that you can't say no. And then by doing those daily actions, you practice those habits, or you practice the, that routine. And by practicing, or in the practicing, you develop the skill, and that ultimately leads to your goal. Possible skills, maybe some of you have really poor time management. The practice that you need to be doing to improve your time management is making the time for the things that matter. And the daily action that you can do is, well, you can start by setting a schedule. Simple enough. Maybe the skill that you lack is planning and preparation. The practice that you need to develop that is you need to be identifying specific and probable obstacles as they happen. And the action that you can do is identify five possible obstacles that you expect to happen. Prioritization, the practice, make a list. Your daily action, review that list daily. Remind yourself of what you're doing. Maybe you have a, a strength goal. 
Well, the practice would be train at a consistent time, level, and frequency. The daily action that you might do is, well, today I'm going to print out a program, or today I'm going to head to the gym, and or today I'm going to make a friend at the gym, maybe a workout buddy. Prepping healthy food that tastes good, that's a skill in and of itself. Just basic kitchen skills, kitchen skills I find are, are a hard one for some people. Um, I think a lot of uh, professionals in the industry agree that there is a lack of good kitchen skills that tends to contribute to people's poor uh, food behaviors. I do have a few clients who, eat, who go out for dinner nearly every night. And uh, I don't judge them, but it does drive me a little wild. Okay, um, the practice would be, or one practice that you could do is try some new recipes. You know, flex your kitchen skills. Um, and the action that you might do for that is go, in, go out and shop for healthy ingredients. So shop for the healthy ingredients, try doing that new recipe, and in the doing or in the process, you will achieve the outcome. Focus on the process, not the outcome. Confidence, I find, is a really big one and a very important one. How do we build confidence? Um, the practice that you could do to build confidence, trying new things often. Adopting a growth mindset, which basically means that you're open to things. Okay? You're not presuming that you sort of know everything about everything. You're willing to try new things. And challenge yourself. And the thing that you can do today is, well, what a lot of you have already done is you've shown up and you've said hi. So, hello. <laughs> um, and we're getting just about into closing here. Um, another word of wisdom from Brian Wansink. The best diet is the one that you don't know you're on. In his book, Mindless Eating, he talks a lot about our sort of unconscious food behaviors. But then he talks about ways to sort of rewire your behavior in a positive way. And some of those re-engineering strategies include thinking 20% less um, with all your foods. So what you would normally reach for, maybe think maybe 20% less. And then with fruits or vegetables, maybe think 20% more. See all you eat. So that basically means when you're going to eat something, try not to keep diving in the bowl and, and eating and then diving in the bowl and eating. Like, serve out a portion. See what you're about to eat. So you get a clear idea of, OK, the amount of food that you're about to eat. Because a lot of the research as well that he's done looking at our food behaviors, some of the things that he's identified is that, funny enough, we tend to eat more from like bowls and bags than we do from plates consistently. So I know that I definitely fall into that group. I, I really try not to have any sort of bagged things. The bulk barn, I love the bulk barn, but it's like my nemesis and the bulk section. People love the bulk section. It's just like snackable foods all day long. And you convince yourself that the trail mix is healthy, but 2,000 calories later, it's like maybe not. Um, ice cream I'm also bad for, so I buy the small pints. Otherwise, that two quarts will be gone. Um, minimize your dishes and leftovers. So basically, just don't cook as much at one time, if that's possible. Um, make overeating a hassle, not a habit. So uh, maybe some of you have tried this technique of if you have uh, certain foods that are like a highly palatable food that are sort of like maybe a trigger food for you, you wrap it in tinfoil and you put it in the fridge so you can't actually see it. Any of you tried that? It works. Um, so different ways to, to do that. Distract yourself before you snack. So if you're sort of feeling a craving coming on, go for a walk or something. Find something else to do. 
be your own restaurant. Make your eating experience, or rather your, you know, hopefully healthy eating experience, a very pleasurable one. You know, set an ambiance. Um, go through the process of making a really delicious meal and really amp it up too. Uh, don't deprive, but also rewire your comfort foods. So I know that a lot of people have grown up with a tradition of always having dessert after dinner. I myself didn't have that tradition, but I'm like a super sweet tooth and I'll eat sweets all day long, it doesn't matter. But um, I find it interesting how a lot of people, no matter what, they will have always, always have dessert. And when you set a sort of automatic tradition like that, it tends to ignore whether or not you're actually hungry. And most of the time, um, after dinner, after you've already had what is presumably a, a relatively large meal, chances are you don't need any more calories after that. Right? So you're probably going to be eating over calories. So what are some things that you can do to rewire that comfort food? Well, if you've already set the habit, and that's already ingrained of having something sort of sweet and delectable after dinner, maybe there's an alternative that's less calorie dense, but still sort of satisfies that, that sweet craving. Or maybe satisfies a, a, a sort of a snackable craving. I have this weird thing with like carrots and bolt house baby carrots. That's like my snackable. And it's just, it's convenient that it's like really healthy. Um, be a good nutritional gatekeeper. So who's in control of the food in the house? Who's cooking all the meals, right? If there's someone else who's doing that and maybe they're not um, health or nutritionally inclined, maybe you can sort of take those reins and, and, and take more charge of, uh, of, of being the nutritional gatekeeper in your home and, and controlling that atmosphere or that environment. One thing uh, that's part of being a good nutritional gatekeeper is market your meals. Build them up, amp them up, hype them up. Um, that really goes a long way. There's a reason that restaurants have like mood lighting and music and candles and really nice dinnerware. It really adds to the experience, right? So try to add to the experience. Offer variety. Focus on the half plate rule. So half your plate, vegetables or something, right? And uh, Try to create official serving sizes, and this goes into portion size me. So if you're making lunches for your kids, don't just like fill up that Ziploc container all the way up to the top. You know, portion out their almonds or cheese slices or whatever that you're, that you're giving them for their lunch. Um, and then beware of health halos. Uh, health halos. Foods that claim to be healthy or that claim to be low calorie. Um, low fat, low sugar, they give, this, they give us this perception that they're healthy and when those health halos exist, we tend to eat more of those foods. Um, so much so that we, uh, we wash out the, the, the calories that we would have saved had we, had we just had one of those things, but we actually end up eating much more and uh, end up going over calories anyway. Hey, that brings us to the end. So. Um, Make sure that you go through those worksheets, read the material, um, download that into your brain, and um, work on taking some positive action towards your goals. All right. Thank you.